In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. I just showed you a packet of critters and insects. Uh, would you give that a go in the future? I would absolutely be willing to try it. I think that already, if you put that in a granola bar, I probably wouldn't even notice. I really don't know. I'm looking at the packet here. It looks like crispy critters. I don't think I'd be eating crickets, locusts, or, or, or mealworms. So you're, you know, if you're at home and a, you know, a fly lands on your knee, you swat it. You don't think, oh, yummy. Uh, no, I wouldn't be thinking that's a tasty fly. That, yo, I'm not the old woman who swallowed the fly like in the song. No, I don't think it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not used to eating bugs, so it sounds pretty gross. Ah, uh, sure. I don't know. Maybe if they put them in a good curry. And have you ever eaten insects before in your life? I did, yeah, in tequila. If they came in nice little confectionery boxes with little ribbons on them and they were marketed well? If they're presented like this, uh, no problem at all, yeah. Um, High in protein, low in saturates. Say you were at a restaurant or, say, coming back after a night out and there's insects on the menu, would you give it a go? No, I'm more of a domino, Domino's girl after a few drinks, to be fair. Um, but I would I would try it in a restaurant if it was on the menu and it was something different. I would. No, because I'm vegan. I would try them. Have you ever tried them before? Only as part of a game, like a board game. Like, what do you call it? I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, kind of board game, and they gave you wee critters to try. I don't know. Um, I've eaten spiders before. Okay, where? Just... Somebody dared me to eat a spider before and I ate a spider. So in Ireland? In Ireland, yeah. And taste-wise, how was it? It's quite a, just like a shellfish, like, you know what I mean? It's similar, like, you know, it's not too much different. It's a bit of a tang to it, like. A lot of people are saying to me today that, like, if it tastes fine, yeah. I'm all right with it. Yeah. Would you be of the same opinion? Say, for example, you had, like, something that looked like a green a green pea yeah. but was made out of wasps. Would you give it a go? Yeah, I'd give it a go. Because, to be honest, yeah, I kind of agree with that. Like, if it tastes fine... And if it's not, like, going to poison me or something, I'd definitely try it. Only if I had to. JJ Clark reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, as they say, you're never too old to try something new. Well, on Friday, Sean Moncree spoke to Terry Aston, who got into life modelling at the age of 64. Take a listen to this. You did allude to this, like you did have a divorce and, and you've had some tough periods in your life. Is there a connection connection with that, you think, in that you kind of built up a kind of sense of resilience? Well, yes. Um, You know, I had some difficult times in my life. You know, my mum died when I was very young. Uh, Unfortunately, my eldest boy uh, died, uh, which no parent really should have to go through. Mm. And in in all of those times, you know, uh, I always said I built this mental carapace, this, this shield, to prevent my emotions sort of getting out and uh which is not anybody knows anything about mental health know that's not a healthy thing to do uh and and i found you know through art and through modeling that um and letting people see me feel who i am and i see i see who i am for what how they represent it that's really helped me through the process right in what way has that helped you through the process well, um, when you put words on it, I know it's probably hard to describe. Yeah, it's, it's 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 a tricky one. It's a tricky one. Well, I suppose all those experiences, um, although you know they're horrible to go through at the time, they do change you. And um, I think I think I'm a better person than what I used to be. Um, 
I know that's a very broad brush uh, sort of sentence, mm. um, but in being confident myself and getting opportunity to meet with lots of people who are like-minded, um, I, I'm now I'm now much more comfortable where from where I was, you know, some years ago. Yeah, because you no, know, it just strikes me. And you said you're thinking about the. Uh, the shopping list for Tesco or, or whatever, but it, it, but but, uh, but it's also I imagine a kind of a, a period of quiet for you. You're just you know you're just being, if you know what I mean. You're yeah, just sitting there. you're right. In fact, you know, lots of classes are very quiet. There's one particular class I did, which was an all day class from ten in the morning till four in the afternoon, and it was a fairly elderly group of artists, and nobody talked at all, mm. and they didn't like to have music on. Oh my goodness me, that made it even tougher uh, because um, I'd like to communicate with people. You know, I'm, I'm uh, a fairly gregarious sort of person. And if I have the opportunity to talk with the tutor or with the artist, that makes uh, the class so much nicer. Yeah, but I, but I assume, are you allowed to talk while you're posing or is that like well, moving ge- between? Generally, if it's life, life poses where people are drawing a whole figure, that, that's not so important. But, you know, I do portrait work as well. And as you can imagine, if people are drawing a portrait, you can't be speaking at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> have, <laughs> have you ever encountered, though, when you've ever got, uh, gone into a, a, a life drawing class? Because, as you say, most people like are, you know, the, the like-minded people. They're very used to it. But maybe somebody who's yeah. new to it, that you can see them getting uncomfortable or giggling or acting inappropriately. Um. No, no, to be really honestly, no. Um, it, it's difficult to tell if people are feeling uncomfortable because I don't think they would voice it. But nobody's walked out of a class, let's put it that way. Um, and usually you can tell from their work that they're fairly new to it. But usually people who have taken that decision to to come to a life class know what they're in for, if you like, if you know what I mean. Mm, yes, uh, indeed. And uh, what's it like? What, the, the, some of the, let me read out one text from Noel, one of our listeners. says, Fair play to him. No one needs to see my body. And they especially wouldn't want her to make art out of it. And I'm half his age. <laughs> but kind of, is that kind of missing the point a bit? Well, it is, and I, and I can tell you know your your listener and anybody else that artists are interested in in interesting bodies. They mm. are not looking for the perfect person at all. You know that some of the models that you get are really, really very large people, or old people, and wrinkly people, and people with scars, people with amputees, people who've had a mastectomy. Women had a mastectomy. Um, there's all types out there. The, the only criteria is that the person who's modelling has to be comfortable in their own body. Because they're not comfortable in their own body, then they're not going to be happy modelling. Life model Terry Aston from Moncrief. On Saturday, the Baron of Dunsany, Aka Randall Plunkett, joined Sinead Ryan on The Home Show. So we're the oldest uh, family in Ireland still associated with one place. We came in... The- uh, with the Normans, so about 900 years we've been here. I am currently the caretaker for Dunsany Estate, commonly known nowadays as Dunsany Nature Reserve. And uh, it's very much that. I'm a caretaker. So every generation has to, you know, combat the problems of their time. And our problem right at the moment is the environment. So I'm trying to do my bit for Ireland and for my people. And do you live in the castle? I do live in the castle, though sometimes it's so cold I wonder if I'm living outside the castle. Why is that? Oh, old houses. You can never plug every (laughs) hole. There's so much draft. 
Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. So it's probably a lot of maintenance and upkeep involved. I never get sick, though. So the, the fact of the matter is it's, it's great. It hardens you. OK, all yeah. right. The outdoor living indoors. Uh, now, uh, talk to me about this rewilding project. Why did you decide to embrace it in such a way? And wh- what was it that you did? So at the, at the time, the rewilding wasn't really on my radar in terms of as a buzzword. It was something that um, came later. In fact, I, I didn't even hear the term rewilding for a few years after I started. What concerned me a little bit is is obviously I'm very privileged to have been born and to be able to take over a place like Dunsany that has so much history and natural heritage as well. And I was watching the area and I was looking at development. And I was thinking how wonderful it is to live in Ireland and it's changing and diversifying. But something scared me a little bit, which was the amount of destruction we were doing of the environment. And my old father and I would speak and he used to tell me stories of all the wonderful things that there used to be at Dunsany. And I asked him one day, why aren't they there anymore? And he said, that's just the development. That's just the future. And I didn't think that was good enough. So, and I was watching the governments and the climate change was already rearing its head and people were talking about it. And I thought to myself, like, nobody's doing anything. And there's a lot of talking and good intentions, but good intentions uh, don't build cities. So I decided that I was just going to do something about it because if you want something done right, you do it yourself. Mm. The only difference is I wasn't going to talk to anybody about it. I was just going to do it. Um, So I did it. And for the first five or six years, it was very much a secret. People just thought I was a lunatic destroying my land. But uh, I saw in that time more and more things coming back, plants I'd never seen before, animals. I would, I would wake up in the morning to sounds I'd never heard before and see things. That, and, and bear in mind that I'm an ignorant filmmaker. What do I know about, about, about animals, about nature? And I was just seeing it open up in front of me. It was a very life-changing experience. And I knew I was right and I had to do more. Now, it wasn't without, as I said earlier, its critics. And, you know, it is your land and presumably you can do whatever you like with it. And you're obviously very passionate about this project. You got rid of all the livestock, um, changed it from being a working farm, presumably, um, for the most part. What was the response locally to that? So I should say um, it's still a working farm in the sense that we still have uh, about a thousand acres that are farmed. So and then, in fact... That's what pays for the rewilding because there's been no there's no monetization of, of rewilding. There's there's no. In fact, quite the opposite. I I sort of felt that money often can ruin these things, or will I say it it changes the focus of certain things. Now my project was quite radical, and it was about in, the environmental protection only. Mm. Um, so I wasn't willing to compromise and to to satisfy shall we say, expectations. I knew what I was doing was important and I needed it needed to be done in the most extreme way for the most extreme reaction. Um, so going back to your original question, the critics, yes, no, at first there was a lot of people telling me that I didn't know what I was doing. And to be perfectly fair, they had quite a lot of justification. I had no idea what I was doing, but I had a feeling and a bit of instinct and that kind of led me to continue and to ignore everyone. There was, of course, uh, a change of... You know, we, in the past, we had a lot of problems with poaching and hunting and things like that. Uh, all of that had to be combated and was not easy. And should we say some people's feathers got a little bit riled when I started 
appearing in, in front of poachers and, and uh, yeah, calling the Yeah, it was more than that, though, Randall. I mean, from what I've read, it it got quite serious at one stage. It got a little bit serious, yeah. No, to be honest with you, there has been threats. There has been, you know, we, we were having such, a, I mean, a lot amount of problems. And these people sometimes are holding guns. And bear in mind, if you go and, and you know, uh, Slane Castle had, a, had a, a groundskeeper who was shot. Yes. Approaching poachers. So I'm well aware of the risks. But uh, there's no risk, there's no reward without risk. And, and to be honest, this is far more important. Uh, this is not just for me. This is not just for my family. This is for the country. This is for our world. I mean, we, we have to make changes today. We should have done it 30 years ago. But nobody, um, there's, nothing, there's no benefit to spilt milk other than the fact we've got to move forward. Um, and we can't wait. And this thing is too important. Like, I've been given an, an opportunity here to do something that's that's really needed in this country and you know it's governments change mm. every 4 years you know that's there's no consistency there but the people don't we need to change ourselves this super impressive Randall Plunkett from the home show with Sinead Roin and of course you can tune into Sinead every Saturday morning from 9 till 10 Drinking at home was once a guilty pleasure, but lockdown, combined with an upturn in social media ginfluencers, is making home drinking now more culturally acceptable. And are we simply glamorising bad drinking habits? To discuss this, I'm joined now by screenwriter and host of the Basically podcast, Stephanie Preisner. Stephanie, I'm guilty of this a little bit myself. I have made cocktails and things at, not that I'm a ginfluencer, but but I've made cocktails and things myself at home and I've posted pictures of them online. Um, Am I part of the problem? You're the original influencer, Kira. <laughs> I don't think that it is as simple as saying, oh, because we're doing it at home now, it's a problem. Like for very many people, it's not a problem at all. They can have their cocktail recipe that they've concocted and they have their glass. It tastes great. They take a picture, share it with their friends. No big deal. And, you know, there are people who are like, during the lockdown, they were invited to Zoom drinks with their sister yeah. in Dubai and they showed up, they had a glass, it was fine. But there are a cohort of people who have become dependent on these occasions and they go from from Zoom drinks to outdoor boozing wrapped up in blankets. They're probably the people who got a bit riled up because their vaccine certs didn't come right on the first day and they thought they might miss out on outdoor drinks. And those people, you know, for the for those people, it has become a problem and it's almost impossible for them to see it because now it's being glamorized and represented on social media. And, you know, there are people now listening to this who know in their hearts that what they're doing with alcohol is is not normal, but they feel like they can't stop because they're going to be judged or seen as a dry balls. And just because it's Instagrammable, Instagrammable and the cocktail looks amazing doesn't mean that it isn't causing damage. You yeah. Know? And there was a, an article called Elegantly Wasted in The Guardian, which, which is kind of what got us thinking about all of this. That that idea that we, you know, put it in a beautiful crystal glass or, or make it look pretty brightly coloured, it's pink, it has a, a, a strawberry on the top of it or whatever. Are we sort of, by doing all of those things, are we dressing up what is a, essentially a drug and a drug that many of us are leaning on pretty heavily at the moment um, as something pretty and glamorous and almost innocuous? And th- there's there's a danger in that. Well, I definitely do think that we wrap it up like when it looks so pretty, it can't be that bad, you know. But like if I said to you, Kira, like um, on Friday night, I took uh, 12 paracetamol. Mm. What would you say to me? I'd say that's a part in which we are liver, to be honest. Yeah. And I think <laughs> we might need a blood test. Most people will be like, OK, that's too much. And Stephanie, objectively speaking, that's not OK. And most people, when they see, you know, they get a box of Nurofen and it says take two, three times a day. They're like, OK, cool. And if they take over that, they're like, oh, God, I better ring my GP. But for some reason, when it comes to alcohol, which is also a drug, 
the recommended allowance, people just are like, no, nah, that's not real. And 11 units a week is the maximum dose for women yeah. and 17 for men. That's and there's more than 10 units in a bottle of wine. But for some reason, when I say, oh, I took 12 paracetamol, people are like, OK, that's a problem. But when you tell me you had four bottles of wine last week, it's like, oh, well, I it's laugh away, because yeah. it was a birthday or it was this or it's this. So I don't like I, you were a doctor. I'm not a doctor, so I don't know why this is. But for p- people will stick to health advice when it comes to other drugs, but not when it comes to alcohol. And I think it's the way we talk about it and it's the social stuff around it, you know, taking paracetamol is not a, a social activity and so you know it, it's more glaringly problematic if I take 12 of them um, and Do we only listen to the health advice do you think that we want to hear because I've often described alcohol as our national pastime and, and, and you are a non-drinker are you, do you think that because you, you, you don't partake that you have slightly more objective view on, on what the rest of us are sort of immersed in? Certain. So I, I just to clarify, I don't partake because I did partake and I had my fill and it was ruining my life. So I stopped. Okay. So just to say that I'm a pioneer, I've never drank. Um, but yeah, I mean, I am the sober person at the party and I can see how people drink and continue and continue and they think that they get more fun and more crack. And it's, you know, it's kind of glaringly obvious that like, wow, this person is no longer in control of anything that they're doing. Um, but then people judge me quite harshly and they're like oh she's such a party pooper she's a dry boss isn't she's no crack and I and you know and and if those are the terms in which you're measuring alcohol intake yes I am no crack but and I'm not saying I don't think that people shouldn't drink at all I think for some people it's it's great and it helps but them do to, you think it's wrong the way that we 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 seem to be harder on the non-drinker than we are on the on the excessive drinker Yes, absolutely. And I think any conversation and like it'll probably happen on Twitter now when I go on Twitter later, people will be like, oh, this girl, rah, rah, rah. you know, people get. Very In fairness, no matter what you came on and said, that would happen on Twitter. I, yeah. I, I wouldn't worry too much about that. No, but, you know, it's just that people become very activated when their alcohol intake is questioned. And, you know, for some and the people who are sort of shout the loudest about it are the people who probably need to listen the most, because if you're getting activated, no one who doesn't have a problem will care what I'm saying. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. We'll just bring you uh, some more reaction from Portland Road this morning. So that's Joel, one brother. We also had Ashley O'Reilly down there, and she was talking to Kelly's other brother, Christopher. He was the one, if you were watching this morning, in the uh, retro Irish jersey with his mother, Yvonne, on his back jumping around. And then we have Kelly's father, Christy, as well. So uh, this is Christopher and Dad Christy. Absolutely amazing for Kelly and you as her family. You must be just beaming with pride. Oh yeah, yeah. We're just so so thrilled, so delighted. It's just. And did you always know that she was going to be an Olympic champion, or what strike you about Kelly that she's just that such a workhorse? We, if everything fell into place, we knew Kelly would deliver, and everything fell into place, and she delivered. Once and she delivered in style. You never know, like, when someone is born or when they're on a journey if they're going to be an Olympic champion. But I think when, when as soon as she got to the Olympics, I mean, I, I felt that this is it. Like, that's that's our stage, you know what I mean? Um, and when she got when she got past the uh, Sessignon in the in the in the bronze fight, like like I said to them yesterday, this uh, it's a dangerous fight for Ferreira. Um There's a lot of talk, obviously, in the media about. 
Ferreira being favourable. I, I told him and, and him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no way. Like Kelly, Kelly is favourite. Like for me, you just look at the styles and the contrast. And yeah, she was she was supreme today. Like she stepped up and she showed she showed how good she is as a boxer. And it was an unbelievable fight. It was probably the best fight I've ever seen was, Kelly box. It was pretty yeah. No, it wouldn't be the best fight she ever had. No, no, Kelly had some really, really good fight, classy fights. No, but uh, it was a very good fight between two different type boxers. Like Kelly is a boxer, that girl was a fighter. That was the difference. Yeah, we were we were even saying like the, the path that she had to get there, like even in the first fight that she fought against Nicolai, the Italian. The fought, the fighters that Kelly's come come up against in the Olympics are I mean top draw like, you know. Yeah. Um Nikolai in the fourth one, um, then Khalif, which who brings just an unknown, you know. Yeah. Then the bronze fight, in the, like Kelly said after the fight, just the top operator, and then today to to dispose of Ferreira the way she did. I mean, that's just it. Like she's, she's unbelievable. And seeing all the kids around here, I talked to some of the girls, some of the girls and some of the young lads said, "I'm going to get involved in boxing now." Yeah, that's what. Yeah. that's what. That's that. That's what yeah. mean the most to Kelly. You now, obviously, the gold medal in the Olympics. Is, is unbelievable but when she sees the pictures and the videos of these young kids and girls just in front yeah. of the screen watching her that's, that's what it'll mean, like, well, for, mean for Kelly would want the kids to be confident and, and go their own dream it doesn't have to be boxing it can be whatever they want in life be confident and go for it that's, that's what she wants to get through the kids and when I pulled up today at about 5am Akuna Matata was playing out over the speakers yeah yeah, yeah. The road, it was, yeah 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 it's lovely, yeah, yeah. I don't know where she pulled that one out of, but it was, it's a cracker, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, we're just unbelievably proud of you. I mean, yeah. can't wait to get you home. Yeah. Can't wait to get you home. Yeah. Um, just let you experience what we've all experienced today. Yeah. So well done. You've you've put not only Ireland, Dave, and Dublin, but like she said, she's she's put Amar and Da and our brothers um, yeah. in, a, in a huge light and we're just, we're just very, very proud of them. Yeah. Yeah, there you are, Ashley O'Reilly, speaking to the two Christies of the Harrington family. Neil Tracy joins me in studio. I mean, there's something beautiful about watching this family uh, coming to terms. Coming to terms usually sounds like it's a bad thing. Uh, coming to terms with a new reality and, and just the tears and the smiles and the reality kind of hitting them and dawning on them. Just extraordinary morning. It's been unbelievable. And even just off air there, we were saying, like, uh, I was in this morning and Ashling was sending back some of those videos that she'd taken with the family and with friends and neighbours down around uh, Portland Row. And you're nearly getting a little bit choked up actually watching them and stitching them all together. And it was just a, just a fantastic morning. Like, I did, trying to think back to last night and the complete naivety of me going, well, I'll get up and, you know, I'll watch the fight. Sure, I can doze off for an hour or so before getting, you know, after, afterwards. Mm. Like, what sort of foolish thinking was that? <laughs> like, there's not, a, there's not a hope you're going back to sleep for two minutes after that. Yeah. Like, it was just, uh, it was just incredible. Um, and even as you were saying with with Joel, her brother, where after the first round, where she was behind on three two with the way the judges had gone, and with the way the Olympic boxing tournament had kind of progressed, it it almost felt like if you lost the first round, even marginally. Yeah you needed something special to go out and actually pull it out of the bag. And that second round, I love how Joe likened it to Shane Long's goal against Germany, Robbie Keane in 2002. Like, 
it was just it was emphatic it was perfect boxing from her in that second round to just completely take control of the fight I think it was Eric Donovan said it in the second round she found her range she found her distance and from there just picked off Beatrice but she did it when she needed to as well yeah and you'd be entitled to being down in the first round to panic a touch and to push it a touch instead she completely outboxed her opponent in the second and third rounds and so maintained composure like Eric Donovan said found the distance found the range and then landed blows at will mm. you would have to say I mean 5-0 5-0 rounds 2 and 3 after losing the first yeah it was funny I was, I was watching the third round and I know she won at 5-0 I think it was just the kind of the natural fear and the nervousness where after the third round finished in my head I was kind of going I kind of, I kind of don't even really remember too much of what happened in this round because you were so nervous along the way. Joe Malloy and Neil Tracy and a jubilant Portland row from off the ball. And Robert in Dublin is on the line. Uh, Robert, you are a renter, is that right? I am, yeah. Um, there was a couple of things said on a, on a, a different radio programme uh, surrounding uh, a reduction in landlords that were entering the rental market. The causative factors for that and the knock-on effect on supply. Mm. And, and there was a couple of things I just wanted to touch on regarding that. But I suppose just a bit of me, I'm 33. I did the leaving in 2006, left college 2009. I've worked and maintained employment since 2004. As an adult in Ireland, I was born into a, a country that was in crisis. Uh, we had to bear the brunt of four years of undulating austerity to restore our financial and economic sovereignty. Everywhere I looked, friends were immigrating. You couldn't move for someone that was immigrating. Um, I stuck around, I did my part, paid tax, canvassed East County Galway for yes equality canvassed Dublin so women could have autonomy over their own bodies I don't even have a penalty point like for all intents and purposes yeah. I'm a model Irish citizen um, you, 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 you upheld your end of the social contract yeah I suppose um, the other day myself and my housemate we were watching an episode of the Golden Girls <laughs> right um, <laughs> Rose Betty White's character um, she had her widower's pension cut off um, she said to the other girls in the house, she said, I passed a homeless person in the street. And as she looked at her and she realized that it was her and that resonated too deeply with us. Like I work in the city center and just like Rose Nyland in 87 on the Golden Girls, my generation lives with this perpetual risk of being a couple of paychecks away from being homeless. Like there's no security, there's no insurance and you've no equity. Um, since I've since I was 18, I've paid to date €120,000 in rent. Wow. In 2006, there was a €600 Euro renter's tax credit. That got phased out very sharply. Um, 50% of that 120000 has gone to the state. So I've paid sixty grand in tax. And so far as I can see, it's pissed into the wind. Uh, the, the state in this country was offered to have the €5 billion Euro broadband plan done for one. It said, ah, no, we'll have to spend five. Um, we have yet to be completed one of the most expensive state-of-the-art hospitals in the world, but it's only for children. We have spent €2 million Euro on a printer that nobody could work. Um, it was said earlier that dissuasions for landlords entering the rental market in Ireland included the burden of all the risk, the capital, the yeah. insurance, the fact that a landlord can now only ask for one month's deposit. I mean, the prerequisite for insurance debases the risk. The reality is that eligibility to become a landlord is privileged. Yeah. Um, there's an almost unwritten prerequisite on me not to be single if I want to own property. A landlord has equity. I mean, or is there an assumption that, you know, our generation is thick? Um, the reality is the succession of governments in this country have rendered a generation 
and yeah. well on its way to a second, homeless, just not destitute. And these are the ones that work, and, the Ro- ones that drive the economy. Ro- can I ask, because Ro- I, I started the show by asking people, renters, about whether they believe promises from government. Uh, and I made the point that in 2014 is when rental crisis, the phrase was first used post-crash in Ireland. And the government, in response to that warning from Threshold, the housing agency, said they were going to look at linking rents, capping rents in line with the cost of living. And I mean, we all know that that ended up being a broken promise. And there's been plenty since then. I mean, there will be promises today that the government are going to get a handle on this. Do you read anything into those promises? I do. And actually, within this, within the the statements that came out regarding uh, a reduction in supply due to pressures on landlords, I will actually round into the politics of it. So uh, another reason that was mentioned was was the bias in tenancy law on behalf of the tenant. Um, So there being a restriction on only one month's deposit, there being in law regulations bias in favour of the tenant cannot and should not ever be construed as contributing factors to the rental crisis. I mean, doing so is positively Orwellian. Uh, it, these are mechanisms to protect this homeless generation of viruses and children of the state from becoming destitute. I mean, anyone who is dissuaded from leasing property over the rights of tenants it has no business being a landlord. And that is the rights of the tenant doing their work and, and good riddance. Um, what was so acutely avoided is the abundance of deliberately held vacant properties in our capital city. And it is a violent emptiness yeah. and it wages war on our generation. And yeah. we can only we can only bear so many blows and the time has come for a right to a home. And I think we really need to address that that is the temperament of an entire generation of Irish. Yeah. People. And listen, they have lo- so lo- little faith. Lots of people in- of that generation, Robert, it has to be said, getting in touch with us here on 53106. And we appreciate you getting in touch. Kieran Cuddihy there from the hard shoulder. Clinical psychologist Dr. Mally Coyne is with us here as well on Lunchtime Live. Mally, do you think a lot of people feel like Enya at the minute, just anxious about returning to normality? Yeah, Andrea, I don't think that that's unusual at all. I mean, particularly for people who might have a proneness to anxiety, because I suppose anxiety is maintained more when we're not, when we're, you know, when, when we avoid situations our anxiety is maintained. So in other words, our anxiety for the last 18 months has remained unchallenged most of the time for people who had these issues with going out and meeting people and feeling judged and and all of that because we didn't, you know, we didn't have to go out. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard now to suddenly go from being in your comfort zone to all of these pressures coming back, particularly for young people where there's a lot of you know, social comparison and thinking that you're missing out if you're not going out and you feel this pressure. But I think it's really important to focus on the present and to focus on, you know, that you don't have to kind of rush out and, you know, do all the things that other people are, that you think other people are doing or or, or posting on social media, to take it slow. Um, But, because it's going to take a while for us to get back to to some sort of uh, kind of normality again. It's interesting when, you know, talking to Anya there and listening to some of the kind of, well, I suppose the impact the last 18 months has had and the changes she's made. But even for people that have made changes, obviously the pandemic has kind of imposed it, you know, in a certain change in people's lifestyle and their lives in terms of socialising. How do you embrace that now? I think it's it's important to, like I put up a post last year going, what part in the rush to return back to normal, what parts of normal are worth rushing back to? So I, I really hope, and I, I think it has done this, even though none of us wanted to be in the situation we were in for the last year and a half, particularly young people who I feel were 
robbed of such important opportunities. It didn't bother me as much because I'm 45, I have kids. It's not like I was going out anyway, do you know? But it's like, I think it's, it's to kind of figure out what aspects of the last 18 months have been positive in my life. Did it help me to kind of realign my values to figure out who are the people that I really, you know, enjoy spending time with? What are the things that are really important to me? Yeah. And then bringing that into your present life. So say if that, if that um, Enya realizes that she's invited to a party that are with people that are not necessarily her cup of tea and that she doesn't feel great around, then forget going to it. And, and you can just say, you know, I can't make it tonight or I can't make it on Saturday. And you don't even have to give an explanation as to why. Mm. You just can't make it. And that's okay. And you kind of embrace the opportunities that are more, that feel more like you can be yourself. You know, it's interesting, I think, the way it gave people a chance to nearly shed or lose the kind of, um, the, the sort of maybe the friends or the old colleagues on the outer circle. You sort of just tend now to keep in touch with the people that your actual friends it give maybe people a chance to kind of reset a bit. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you there. And I think for people with social anxiety or who feel that bit of anxiety, and like there's a lot of people who, who have found it difficult and even the prospect of going back to work proper in, in September or going back into a building with other people and all of that, I think it's it just put your hand on your heart and say this mm-hmm. is a, a very normal no, human reaction to what has been really abnormal in the last 18 months. And it's okay for me to feel as I do. Um, I suppose anxiety does get worse when we avoid situations. So what I would say, I'm just after running an anxiety management group with parents. And what we talk about is taking tiny steps, small steps towards a bigger goal. So if your big goal is I want to be able to go to a party again with other people or I want to be able to go out for dinner, you know, within the guidelines, um, then you take small steps towards that goal okay. and you don't have to kind of flood yourself with something that will make you really scared. All right. Listen, good advice. Dr. Molly Coyne, clinical psychologist. Molly, thanks a million for joining us here on Lunchtime Live today. Andrea Gilligan on Lunchtime Live. I think it's a bit late. You think it's a bit late? Yeah. You don't think we can do much? No. What have you done to help the environment? Um, well, I've actually switched to a vegetarian diet. Um, I hope to go vegan. I don't know at the moment if I can, but um, the environment was probably the main you know, reason behind going vegetarian. Um, I feel like everyone should make an effort at least to reduce meat consumption because it's one of the main reasons in dairy and stuff like that. So I've tried to kind of reduce consumption of fast fashion, stuff like that. I think there's a need there to reduce, recycle more clothing and stuff like that. So I do try with that. But on a group level, not so much. I don't think so. How's it going? I'm Rory Grogan. Do we have a climate change crisis? Has it reached breaking point? They're coming at it wrong, I think. Not so much coastal erosion as in heating uh, sea temp- temperatures, rising sea temperatures. Is it a code red for humanity? Can we do um, anything? Their current trajectory, they're not going to do anything. You know, methane goes up into the atmosphere. In 15 years' time, it's in the cycle. It's back down in the, in the soil, the CO2. A quicker thing might be like intermittent fasting, maybe where you take a day or two, maybe one day a week where you don't fly anywhere, you don't drive anywhere, you cut your CO2 emissions that way. So we all could do something to stop yeah, flooding yeah. heat waves. Maybe, you know, um, stop chopping down rainforests. And driving around, people are driving around, does that person yeah, every, there? everyone goes for a drive on a Sunday, maybe, you know, if they're really concerned about it. On Monday, yeah, maybe, every, maybe one day a week, everyone, you know, don't fly, make your commitments, don't drive your cars, turn off the lights don't wait for you know one day a week I think that'd be, be a quicker way than maybe trying to push the whole um, 
you know, cows and that kind of way. That, that's not going to work really, no. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. It's, it's out there now. Uh, your mother knows, your friends know. At what point and how long did it take to decide, look, the police have got to be involved in this? Um, four years ago, so three years before I started giving statements. And what was your hesitancy about at that stage? Um, I mean, I had had people say, oh, you can't go to the guards, you know, which I don't, I don't know why. I'll probably never know why that was their first reaction. Um, but also I wasn't ready to talk about it. And even giving my statement was the first time that I had said a lot of it out loud or divulged that to anybody. So it's, it is a lot. It's a massive process. It's, it, it's a big step and it's certainly not easy, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that's, if anyone is listening, that is considering it, I would say do it. There's a lot of support, even though you might think there isn't, there definitely is. How difficult was it when you decided ultimately, I've got to go to the guards, we've got to see this thing through uh, to the end, if, if possible, to a, a conviction? What was it like talking to the guards? It's like, it's tough and they are lovely. I had a really lovely guard taking my statements. She was amazing. Um, but you're divulging, you're saying, as I said, of saying a lot of this out loud for the first time was probably the hardest bit. Um you also have that doubt in your mind, like, will they believe me? Because I'm very aware this story is unbelievable in parts. Um, it's quite far, it sounds quite far-fetched. Um, so there's always, you know, will I be doubted? Um, and then there's always that fear, will the DPP take up the case? You know, after you've gone through everything and all of the statements, there is always that risk that the DPP will come back with no conviction. Um, so it is tough, but... And now that I'm at the other end, it was worth it. Now, meantime, um, your, your father had not been inactive, having been thrown out of the house. No. He got involved in other situations. He did, yeah, unfortunately. And that was kind of another reason I came forward, because I just have a, had a feeling, I was like, he's not going to stop. Um, I know I was obviously unaware of what he was at when he left the family home, um, but that was a, just another kind of reason why I came forward. Now, recently he was convicted. He did uh, plead guilty to the offences against you, a number of sample charges, which got him an 18-year sentence, uh, one year of which the final year was uh, suspended, which is the norm, I think, when there is a cooperation and a, a, a guilty plea. But it did take, in, in spite of all of that, it took a long time to get from your initial meeting with the Gardaí to that court day in court? Yeah, um, just maybe three and a half years to get to that point. And then we had three court days. And why does it take so long? Um, I mean, there's, the, the case file is huge. <laughs> there's a lot to take yeah. into consideration. Um, you kind of, you have to get, like my statement, it took me a good while and I, I did take maybe a six month break in between because it, it was it was difficult. Um, I mean, I was doing six hour kind of days just constantly talking about it um it's there's a lot a lot involved and i don't think people realize how much is involved um you know and i i had assumed he wouldn't know about it until the charges came back but that's that's not the case either 
Now, in the meantime, of course, he, he was not at liberty uh, during the, the period of the trial. He was already behind bars for other offences relating to minors. Yes, absolutely. He was serving a seven and a half year sentence. So from that point of view, you know, the delay wasn't as critical in terms of safeguarding other people. He was safely behind bars absolutely, yeah. at, at that point. In in court then, when, you know, the, the Irish courtroom system, you're pretty much face to face with uh, all of the the actors in court. Yes, including absolutely. Including the accused. Yeah. What was that like? Um, I mean, I had, I've been working closely with the ladies from the Rape Crisis Centre who... I have to say, are just invaluable, um, especially in the court process. And I remember having a conversation with them and we were kind of trying to, you know, predict what might throw me on the day because I was determined to face him and deliver my impact statement in court. And I had kind of said, OK, well, maybe, you know, he'll be this frail man because he's quite a big man. He was 20 stone or so. Um, he might be this frail man, you know, and that might throw me. Um, I didn't know whether I'd feel, you know, sorry for him or sympathy or whatever it was. And what actually threw me was that he looked exactly the same. It hadn't had any physical impact on him whatsoever. Um, So that actually threw me. But thankfully, I could, there's a glass panel on the door of the court. I could see him before going in. So I was able to kind of gather myself. And then I don't know where the strength came from. But I, I, you know, he looked at me a number of times. I was able to look him in the eye and then I delivered my statement. And in the court, he was literally right beside me um, whilst delivering my statement. This super brave Charlene Masterson from The Pat Kenny Show. Now, this week, Alive and Kicking explored the burnout solution and pathways to recovery. Here's Claire McKenna and resilience coach Siobhan Murray. So look, it's not going anywhere um, and neither do busy schedules, Mm. whether it's family life, work life, whatever it is that has Mm. you burnt out. Is it about changing your reactions to things as opposed to changing everything around you? Yeah, I think what what's really important is to understand if anything that I've said, if it's, if it's resonating with people to go, OK, actually, I, that, that's, you know, this I felt like this for quite a while now. I would say to people, you know, what you've got to do is sit down, look at your negotiables and your non-negotiables. We are, as human beings, great at creating quite busy lives for ourselves, um, sometimes we don't need to. We can actually take a break. It's not that we have to stop doing certain things, but we can say, okay, you know what? I'm going to take a break from doing X, Y and Z because I'm going to focus on what I call your four pillars, which is your sleep, nutrition, exercise and clutter. So there might be other things that you just put yourself under pressure to do because you think, you know, and I do think this is a very Irish thing. If we're not doing something, there is this little voice going, "Mm, you're very lazy. Mm, Doing nothing isn't really celebrated and yet it's so important as you say to get into that rest or digest what's clutter we hear a lot about the other pillars often but what's clutter so clutter falls into to two sides you're talking about the physical clutter that is around you so if it is really basic is if you have a cluttered environment your brain is cluttered because you're kind of going where am I going now there's organised chaos and there's having a bit of a mess and you know if you have small kids and or teenagers believe me they don't know that you can actually open the dishwasher and put things in and um, they just think the sink is there and then the magic fairy puts it in. But it, it, it's about that big clutter. But also I'm talking about the clutter, the internal chatter in our heads. 
clutter of toxic relationships that bring us down as well, that don't make us feel good about ourselves. And a lot of those relationships can be extended family. Now, we can't cut our extended family or it could be parents. You know, as adults, we can have quite toxic relationships within adult siblings, um, our parents. We're not going to cut those out, but we're going to take charge of how much time we spend with those because we know that I don't feel great when I yeah. come out of that. So declutter what's not serving you. So Absolutely. Siobhan, if we're on top of these things, should we be leaping out of bed every morning, ready to attack the day, no. smiling all through the day 24-7? No, we need to acknowledge that there's days where lying on the sofa and watching Netflix with a cup of tea is great. I have a, a way of describing self-care. Self-care is not getting your nails done or your hair done or... Um, a bubble bath or for the guys, you know, going off and playing golf or... You know, or sitting scrolling through your phone. phone. That's not self-care. The, 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 the hair and the nails, that's maintenance. If that's your thing, that's maintenance. Self-care is asking yourself, what do you need? The hard questions, what do you need right now that's going to serve you well and following through on that answer. So that might be you are cross-eyed tired and you absolutely can't put one foot in front of the other and going to the gym is going to put more uh, pressure on your adrenal glands and that's not what you need to do. It is sit in the sofa or actually it is lashing rain outside but you're not tired and really putting on a coat and a hat and just going out for 15 minutes is what you need to do. That's self-care. Some practical tips there from resilience coach Siobhan Murray from Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. And of course, you can tune into Claire every Sunday morning from 9 till 10. OK, I'm going to leave you with now some classic Henry McKean. Have a great weekend. You're wearing slippers. Are they like slippers for the house and you're wearing them no. out and about? No. Are they flip-flops? What are they? They're like flip-flops, but you can wear them out as well. So like you can wear them everywhere, kind of. So they're not slippers? No. Would you see yourself as lazy or not lazy? Lazy. She just is. She does nothing. She's like my husband. They all take after her. But they're... So she doesn't do anything. do anything in the home? No, no nothing does at she all. she clear up the plates or hoover? She will empty the dishwasher once in a blue moon. And that's it? And your husband yes. doesn't do much either? No, very, very little. And Even less. And you have to nag him? Yes. And how has it got to that in the year 2021? Uh, you're the mum, you're the ma'am. And you're having to do all the housework and do everything. Yes, it's extremely frustrating. And the children don't do anything? Sophie's a little bit lazier, but her brother does a bit more. Very frustrated. And do you shout and scream about it? Not a lot, no. I just think it's easier to do it myself. don't like shouting a lot with neighbours. I can't stay easy in any way, so laziness wouldn't be an option for me, you know? So you can't sit still no. for hours on end? No, I have to be on the go. I wouldn't be able to... Like, it's... Um, even lucky if I sit through a whole movie like without having to be up and doing something. I'm the opposite though. So you like I would to sit, sit about? I like sitting around, as you can tell. Love it. Nothing better. <laughs> the older I get, the earlier I get up because there's more things to be done. So you're not lazy? Uh, I don't think I'm lazy, no. Not at this stage, no, I'm afraid. And is he lazy? No, he actually isn't. I personally wouldn't say I'm a very lazy person, but I do think laziness can kind of be a good thing because it can kind of make you slow down sometimes and take a rest when you actually need it. And I am a bit, I am a bit known for procrastination, but I think kind of you do, you can kind of get overcome laziness and sometimes I think it's all right to be lazy. I wouldn't say that laziness is a disease in a sense. Like it, it's kind of, like it's a part of life and it's sort of how like 
I'd sort of see it as like an evolutionary thing, you know, like we've evolved to kind of like be what you'd refer to as lazy. But I wouldn't really describe it as being a disease or anything like if you have like enough kind of willpower and enough sort of motivation just to get yourself up, but also like discipline as well, to just kind of get yourself up and move on with your life. What sort of things have you procrastinated about? Oh, 100% like my schoolwork, like and any work with college or anything. I just, I, yeah, that's so it. Last minute cramming study. Oh, 100%. If I have a deadline, if it's due at 11.59, I will start at 11.58 and try to get it done in the minute. Like. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Drivers of Ireland, it's now or never. When you want the great value cover that only comes with super value car insurance, giving you a 10% online discount and shopping vouchers with your policy. That's a great deal for the cover you need anyway. All it takes is one big click or call. Just visit supervalue.ie slash insurance or call 0818 and our super value team will save the day. So give us a spin. Terms and conditions apply. Vouchers include two 10 euro off 40 euro spend. This car insurance is underwritten by AXA Insurance DAC. Super Value Financial Services DAC, trading as Super Value Insurance, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.